You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMA Junkie, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Well, Ben, it's it's Tuesday. Uh, this is the first of two slightly delayed episodes of the Co-Main Event Podcast, both this week and next week. Um, this week, because Monday was Labor Day, both my wife and I were off work at the same time, and uh, we wanted to spend the day doing stuff. What'd you do? Uh, we drove up the Bitterroot. We were going to go to the uh, to the Daly Mansion, the the mansion of former Copper King Marcus Daly. Right. Uh, but then we didn't. Down the Bitterroot is what you did. You drove down the Bitterroot. Right. Yeah, but no one says that. They say up the Bitterroot. South. So it is. It is south. But you're kind of being an asshole about it right okay. now. Okay. Also, so you don't just, you just, try to distract me from telling everyone <laughs> that next week's co-main event podcast is going to be late because you are going to Maine to. Uh, why are you going to Maine? Are you have you been tabbed as a private investigator to locate uh, Ovin St. Prue to discover the whereabouts of Ovin St. Prue? How do you know I'm not going to just do a bunch of awesome rich guy stuff like Dana White? Maybe I'll go ride some motorcycles around or get drunk and buy a smart car. Are you going to do a story about the economic impact of Fight Night 47 or whatever it was that they had no, up there? No, I am not doing a story on shit because I'm on vacation. Hashtag lifestyle piece about Tim Sylvia? Uh, I will have a hashtag lifestyle piece going up in my absence, but uh, I'm going because my brother-in-law, my wife's brother, is getting married. Uh, you know, my wife is from Boston and her brother lives in Boston. but Outside you know what, Boston. You know, Fine. Uh, you know what people in Boston do when they go to get married is uh, rent some super awesome cabin place in Maine. So that's what we're going to do. My daughter's a flower girl in the wedding. My wife is officiating the wedding. I'm going to go and drink a bunch of craft brews and eat a bunch of damn lobster. But maybe maybe we find out in doing this that Tuesday is actually a better day for the podcast. Because haven't we been complaining about how much news drops right after the podcast on Monday? From a news-breaking standpoint, we might, in fact, find that out. From a personal, I had to do work all day today and like bust ass to try to get it down, oh. done before you were going to come over oh, here. Oh, so sad. Tuesday is much worse than busting ass all day Monday for me. How so? That's what I do every Monday. I have more shit to do. I know. Well, Monday fucking sucks every week because we have to do the podcast. <laughs> Tuesday sucks worse for me. I don't feel like this is a very good argument at all, but let's go ahead. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, TJ Dillashaw is the UFC champion you'd most like to take home to meet your mom. And it also seems like he's pretty good at fighting, too. And in round number two... This week's UFC Fight Night 50 main event was voted the most likely to sound like a male fragrance. It's Sweet and Sassy by Jacare. Jacare. And in round number three, on Friday in Connecticut, the UFC and Bellator put on dueling shows approximately 12 miles apart. Is this the start of something cool or just, you know, not? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But like we do every week about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. 
The first piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Chris Girardi. He writes, Danny Castillo's incredulity about losing a fight where he merely held a grown man down really pissed me off. Wrestling is a great part of MMA, but do you guys find it as frustrating as I do that a fighter in the co-main event of a pay-per-view thinks he all he needs to do is wrestle a guy to the mat and hold him there without offering any actual offense to win a fight? Yeah, that was surprising that he would invoke the I held a grown man down defense when he lost a split decision. You know how you know that your argument for why you should have won that fight is bullshit? You had to invoke that it was a grown man that you did it to. You had to throw that part in there to make it seem more impressive. If you have to do that, if you have to point out that what you yourself a grown man did was against another adult male and not against, say, a child, uh, then maybe you're kind of admitting that what you did wasn't that impressive. Yeah, he almost said, he almost said held him down, right? I think he did say held him well, down. Well, he almost said something that is like synonymous with having a shitty fight, but then stopped himself halfway through and rephrased. Well, I just can't remember exactly what it was. That's what I thought was really surprising about his explanation for that fight was that he was basically saying like, I did the stuff that other people complain people only do. And somehow get away with decisions. Like, I th- wait a minute. I thought this was how it works. I thought that I did the stuff necessary to get a shitty decision. And instead, even though I did that stuff, the decision goes the other way. And then you're going to be mad about it and talk about how if this fight was in prison, then the other dude would really be in trouble. I mean, you'd probably both be getting your heads kicked in by uh, a bunch of dudes if you were fighting on the floor in prison. Plus, it'd just be gross because the floor of a prison, I imagine, is not somewhere you want to get down there and work on your guard passing skills, of which Danny Castillo seems to have very few. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I thought like it's one thing if he hadn't have gone off like that in the post fight interview, there might have been some sympathy for him in that one because I thought it was a little surprising to see Tony Ferguson win that decision, even though I liked it. But then when you get on there and you complain like, but I I held him down and otherwise did nothing. Why didn't I win? Then I think people turn against you real quick. Yeah, well, then we should point out that this is the rare fight where the guy who spends the majority of the time on the bottom actually gets the decision victory. Uh, and that's probably the, a credit to Tony Ferguson, who I agree with you, yeah. did act awesome throughout this entire fight and was trying to do stuff off his back uh, pretty much the entire time. And, and Danny Castillo didn't didn't really mount any offense in terms of, of striking on the ground or trying for submissions or anything like that. Um, I'm a fan of wrestling. I like it. Like the, uh, uh, you know, one of the, I think I've said before on the podcast that one of my favorite ways to watch a guy win is by dominant unanimous decision, because that's the kind of thing that you can't take away from a guy that can't be a fluke. That can't be a, a lucky submission or a, or a, or a lucky punch. That means that you just kick the other guy's ass for 15 minutes, which to me, that's about as good as it gets. However, I do also agree that since we're dealing with a mixed martial arts situation, that you are supposed to mix your martial arts. And so uh, wrestling, I think, should be a little bit of a risky proposition in this sport just because I feel like you should only win a fight primarily with wrestling and takedowns if the other guy can't do shit. Like, if, if you take a guy down and hold him down for 15 minutes and he's helpless, yeah, I agree. According to the unified rules of MMA, you should win that fight. And I don't have a problem with that uh, normally when it happens that way. But this was not that fight. No. This was a fight where uh, Tony Tony Ferguson got taken down but then was arguably more offensive uh, off his back with submission attempts and stuff like that than, than, than Danny Castillo was. Well, in some of those times, it wasn't even that he was being taken down. He was putting himself in those situations in search of a finish. And then Danny Castillo 
Mysterio just claiming the top position would kind of bury his head in his chest, put his hands uh, on his biceps and his armpits, uh, and then not do anything because he he felt like if he did try to do something, try to get offensive from the top, try to pass his guard, that he was going to be in trouble, that that he was going to open himself up to some submission attempts because Tony Ferguson was just going for stuff. And it seems like if that's the thing where if you are just so content to stay on top because you've got it in your head that the top guy is going to win, I mean, I feel like in one way I can kind of feel bad for you because, yeah, ju- MMA judges have led you to believe that. Like, they have sent you that message over time that that's what can win a fight. Uh, at the same time, I'm not going to be mad if they're going to start changing their minds now that, hey, maybe that's bullshit. Maybe that doesn't win you a fight. Maybe it's the guy who's doing stuff, doing damage, and, and looking to try to end that fight who, in a close fight, is going to get the decision. I don't have a problem with that at all. I can tell you that, uh, you know, all the dudes that uh, down at Jiu-Jitsu were all sitting around there trying to figure out some of the stuff that Tony Ferguson was trying to do. Not a whole lot of people were out there trying to figure out uh, how to learn to just lay on top of a guy and stay completely still like Danny Castillo was doing. Yeah, and then, and in this fight, I agree with you on that. But in a general sense, I try not to fall into the MMA cliche that wrestling is not offense. Because you can. that's how we talk about it. And, and in Chris Girardi's... Uh, email here he says he, he held him on the mount without offering any actual offense and in this fight i agree with that because he got out offensed by tony ferguson from the bottom but in a fight where the guy on the bottom isn't offering any offense wrestling is offense and according to the rules that we've all agreed upon uh you know under which to stage these fights that wins I get. I mean, it's, people think it's boring, but fuck them. It wins by if the, if nothing happens except for the takedown. Then I guess that was the only thing that happened. So fine, you get it. But I mean, I, I don't. I think that people do uh, see the takedown itself as offense too often, uh, or or see it as as offense to a greater degree than it really is. And I mean, and fighters have kind of internalized that where you know close round. Last minute, everybody's trying to get the takedown to seal it in the judge's mind, that kind of stuff. Like, people have assigned this value to a takedown, and then kind of either they convince the judges to go along, or they have seen that the judges will go along with that, and so they're doing it. Uh, And this was one of those rare fights where I thought, like, maybe the judges are are going against what they've led fighters to believe, but I'm totally fine with that in this case. The next question this week comes from Dan O. Remember a while back when I sent a listener mail question asking why Ben Askren's fighting style made it seem like he abhorred violence? Don't remember that at all. No. (laughs) Well, based on his last two fights, it looks like he's given up on pacifism as a way of life for the time being. What do you think caused the sudden change of heart? It can't just be the quality of opponent because you can actually see the because you can actually see the difference in effort he puts into his strikes. Is this part of a conscious effort to make himself more appealing to the UFC? Will it work? What's really going on here, you guys? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to posit that most of it actually is the difference in quality of opponent, because I think you could see in Ben Askren's last couple of fights in Bellator, uh, before he went over overseas to 1FC, uh, it did seem like he had made a switch that he had had... Uh, uh, kind of decided that he was going to try to do a little bit more damage on the ground and, and, and not just win fights with his amazing wrestling, which I guess to date has been better and, and good enough to beat all of the guys that he's come up against in this sport. And he did finish those last two in Bellator. Yeah. Uh, it, but, you know, the, this fight in 1FC, he was able to just kind of steamroll his opponent, I think, because uh, of 
lack of quality of opponent. I mean, that's what I think. He he he's been showing more urgency in terms of trying to finish fights, but I believe the the like the expeditious fashion in which he was able to finish his fight is because the dude's Ben Askren is fighting in one FC ain't ready. Well, I don't know. I mean, that that could be part of it. I mean, uh, this dude who he he just steamrolled, like you said. I mean, his last fight, he he took a decision off of Brock Larson, who knows his way around some some wrestling. Uh, so. I mean, I don't know if it's all that. I think it also just could be that maybe with a little more experience and cage time in there, Ben Askren is getting better. You know, I don't know if we should necessarily write that off and assume that, like, the Ben Askren we saw when he was seven fights into his pro career is the one that we should just, like, label him as for all time going forward. I mean, I think some of that could be that uh, he's developing his game a little more uh, and feels like a little more comfortable pressing that offense like he can go out there and put some dudes away. I mean... I also, when watching that fight, and by watching that fight, I mean watching the GIF that was basically a video of, like, the last 30 seconds of the fight. Well, the whole fight was a minute and 24 seconds right. long, so the, the, the GIF was basically the whole thing. Uh, yeah, the GIF was. Uh, but I felt like, man, if Ben Askren really learns how to or develops a willingness to completely exploit the the kind of open rules of one FC, like the way Roger Huerta was uh, throwing those knees on the ground, maybe getting some soccer kicks in there. He might fuck around and kill somebody. Yeah. Especially in that organization where, as I posted on Twitter, right after the, the gif of that fight came out, those refs want to be real sure about those stoppages. <laughs> they just like, want to make sure the guy's dead. That's yeah, all. They don't want him. Well, yeah, they want him to be dead rather than uh, like, I guess, cheat him out of a few more punches by committing a, an, an early stoppage. Uh, let's talk about the other aspect of this, the Ben Askren to the UFC dot, 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 uh, message board headline. Um, he went on the, the fortnight today, obviously with Helwani and said a bunch of awesome stuff as he is apt to do because, um, you know, while Ben Askren has a really bad reputation as a boring fighter, uh, I don't think he's that boring of a fighter. And I think he's an awesome interview. seems like he's getting better at that at kind of like real like like Chael Sonnen said about himself at one point that taking his his normal personality and kind of turning the volume up and Ben Askren has that normal like wrestling jock asshole kind of personality and it seems awesome like he's personality yeah, in other words he's, he's cranking it up I especially love though that like Dana White's response after this one was hey you know maybe he gets a couple more wins he can, he can get a shot in the UFC and Ben Askren immediately being like hey take your shot and shove it up your ass basically just you know I'm not gonna don't act like I should be thankful to you for saying something like that. Uh, I think that is totally sweet, and it's go- it seems like we're on a trajectory to get to a point when uh, Ben Askren comes in and is some kind of stone-cold Steve Austin figure feuding with the boss all the way to the top, which I would totally be into. Yeah, I would be too, I, I, and, and I like that Ben Askren is one of the few guys in this industry that, that has the stones to say that he doesn't like the way Dana White treats people, uh, which... You know, from the outside looking in, seems like a valid criticism, but one that like doesn't endear yourself to that power structure over the over there, and and also like, you know, throws a magnifying glass over the weird situation that we have in this sport, where it's like you're not supposed to say stuff like that because it could adversely affect your ability to make a living by working for the biggest MMA promotion in the world, which is like as a professional sport, a really weird place to be. Yes, because the unstated assumption in that logic is you're not supposed to say stuff like that because the super powerful megalomaniacal dude uh, who you're saying it about has the power to just, on his personal feelings, keep you out of the biggest organization in the sport. Right, which so is insane. weird. Like, if it's you insane. say that stuff about Roger Goodell, like, 
he's not going to like it. You know, maybe you would even get fined if you were a, a, a an employee of the NFL or something like that. But it's like you're not going to get cut from the Dolphins because of it, right? Right. So it's just a, it, it once again underscores like the weird landscape of this sport, which I think is becoming weirder and weirder, like as we go. <laughs> so for some reason, we thought a few years ago that it was going to get more normal. It's actually gotten much weirder. It has. It really has. Uh, next question this week. It's a long one. It comes to us from Omar from Baltimore. He writes, a lot of people in the media have been defending UFC 177 using the argument, hey, some of the fights were watchable to good. Is this really a valid argument? Aren't we all watching people fight in a cage for money and we are fans of cage fighting? Is that really a selling point for what counts for premium MMA? After all, last weekend there was a pretty good night of fights for free Friday night. There's also some pretty good fights for free uh Two. Two. Just talking about UFC Fight Night 50 coming up this Friday night. Oh, okay. Why should I drop 60 bucks if I got the last weekend and I'm getting the Foxwoods cards on Friday? If the hey, these fights between... Uh, we get the point here, right? Well, you're just going to cut them off like halfway. <sighs> hey, these fights between a bunch of nobodies is fun to watch. Is the selling point for premium content is, quote, somewhat enjoyable. Why do we need the UFC? Bellator has plenty of fights that meet that standard. So does World Series of Fighting, RFA, Shudo, Cage Warriors, and Titan. Local MMA is fun if all you care about is knockouts and nifty chokes. When did the standard for premium MMA go from GSP to a card with one top 100 fighter in the world? I feel like Omar from Baltimore is basically like reading our minds. Or maybe he's listened to the podcast before. Yeah, yes, maybe it's not that difficult to read our minds at this point okay you and i talked about this a lot when you came over to my house to watch ufc 177 because you know it was kind of surprising to me uh in the lead up to this fight where for one thing you know people were talking about it being a pretty weak pay-per-view back before it lost one half of the main event and had to scramble to to keep a title fight on there and then afterwards you know where, where people were kind of having this conversation about is it worth buying dana white flipping out at the media particularly your colleague jonathan snowden it seemed uh, who wrote that column uh, saying that people shouldn't buy it in order to send the ufc a message uh and dana white just losing his mind over that stuff and i was surprised on twitter how many people i heard from who seemed to feel like like not only had they completely bought the ufc's logic and the ufc's selling point on this which is like hey real fans will pay for this um they they were just repeating that just totally regurgitating that line but also like acting as if they should somehow be thankful for the opportunity to continue paying for this stuff uh regardless of whether it's worth their money as if like if you're doing any sort of calculus to try and figure out what's worth paying for what's a premium level card what's not if you're doing that that you're somehow a bullshit fan on the face of it just for doing that which is really surprising but also made me think man the ufc ought to be super grateful that they have customers like that because otherwise man they'd be in a lot of trouble yeah we talked about exactly that thing on saturday night which it's i feel like if you are one of the first of all let me say for the record i don't care if you are a person that watches every event or you are a person who comes in once every six months and buys a Nick Diaz pay-per-view, like to each his own, man, whatever you want, just do your thing. It's I don't, your money. I don't, you get to decide how to spend it. I don't know why it has to be such a contentious issue all the time in, in this sport. Uh, but if you are a person that buys every single pay-per-view card, watches every FS1 card, watches every Fox broadcast card, watches every fight night card, Man, you are the true hero. Like, 
And I'm not even trying to be a dick about it. You just are. I'm not being sarcastic. You like the UFC, frankly, does not deserve you. Like that, I think, is the good point that can, the UFC does not deserve that fan. Can you imagine being a producer of any kind of product and just fucking lucking into this uh, industry where there is a seems to be a large number of your consumers who are like, no, nah, we don't care how good it is or what it is or like uh, if it costs more money than we normally pay or if it's just like an out and out screw job. We want it. We're going to pay for it, man. And frankly, tell us how we can pay for more stuff. And not only will we pay for it, we will react defensively against anyone who says that maybe we should be asking for more in exchange for our money. I mean, that's the thing that's really surprising is when people will get mad at media members for essentially saying you should be giving these people more than you're giving them for the money you're taking from them. I mean, they're saying that for you. For you, the fan, they want you to be getting more for your money, uh, especially because they don't want you to eventually decide that uh, this is this is maybe a bullshit thing to, to be doing is to giving the to be keep to keep giving the UFC your money for for non premium quality cards. And I think one of the things that somebody made a point to me on Twitter, and I think I've heard this from several people, and I think this is definitely happening, and the UFC is slow to react to it, is that. You know, Dana White saying, hey, if you don't like it, don't buy it, you goof. Who asked you to buy it? I don't care if you buy it. Shut up. Um, people are saying, fine. Like, all right, I won't buy it. I mean, I think a lot of people probably did that with this one. I think it's happening a lot where people are saying, all right, well, you don't care if I buy it. You're not really going to even try and make the case to me. Uh, when you do make the case to me, it's just the same case you've made for every other card. It's not convincing. I'll stop buying it. And then this drift begins to happen where they're not seeing the up-and-coming guys. They don't know who these people are, why they should care about them when they fight next time. They they just gradually become less a fan of the sport because they, they're skipping these events. They're missing out on this stuff uh, and you know finding their entertainment elsewhere. Right. And so you're losing fans that way and you're not able to get them back. And I think that that's, the UFC seems so concerned with just like expanding globally and global fucking domination that they're not thinking about the fans they have, the existing fans who are drifting away from them. Yeah. So basically the stuff we've been talking about on this show since episode one. Basically. Uh, and I just, before we move on, I want to point out, I always think it's really telling that the fight company, the thing that they respond to most vehemently all the time is when they feel like their bottom line has been affected or like when somebody comes for their business, you know, like almost you can write almost anything else and maybe they'll get mad at you. Maybe they'll send an email to your boss, whatever. Uh, if, if you write a thing that they feel like threatens their business, threatens the amount of money that they're going to make, that's when Dana White calls it disgusting and despicable. And you can kind of see it in their personnel decisions, too, right? Like, look at the difference between the way they handle something like uh, Vitor Belfort failing a drug test and then immediately getting booked into this uh, title fight against Chris Weidman. That's, that's an instance where, like, Vitor Belfort fucked up. Vitor Belfort uh, committed this... this uh, offense against the rules, but like they think that Vidor Belfort can make them more money, so he's going to get a title shot against Chris Weidman. Whereas Henan Barrow, this last weekend, uh, missed weight, an offense that you would think is less uh, terrible than a dude who uses performance enhancing drugs. Certainly less intentional. 
and less intentional, but because it happens right before this event, they have to pull him off the card uh, and like replace him with Joe Soto. They feel like that probably adversely affects their bottom line. They're embarrassed by it. That you know, that's when they drag a guy out in front of the cameras and and do this interview with him that that frankly feels like a punishment and yeah. not like uh, uh, a quest to get to the truth. Exactly. Right? Yeah. No, and and that's that's a point that I made too. That you know, hey, yeah, you fail a drug test after they've gotten their money out of you, uh, then it'll be a you know a statement on the website talking about how disappointed they are. Right. Uh, you 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 screw it up to where they feel like you cost them money beforehand. Then yeah, you get called to the carpet. That kind of thing. I, I also think that. Uh, you know this the this act after the fact logic that hey the fights these these fights were good or at least better than they looked on paper and I'm you know I think some of the criticism after the fact like Deadspin had a thing basically calling it just a like horrible embarrassing event which I don't know if you can totally say that I mean I think that uh, the the lineup wasn't great uh, as far as importance of the bout you can say yeah the the bouts that we got yeah hey maybe it wasn't worth uh, fifty bucks but. I mean, it was a, it was a fun main card. There were some yeah. fun fights to watch yeah. on that. I was entertained. I I, I did not feel like, uh, you know, that at the end I I was irate about not getting my money's worth. Right. Uh, I mean, but at the same time, that can't be used as an argument before the fact. The way so many people want to do it, like saying like, hey, it's always the cards that are crappy that that end up being awesome. So. So wait, it being crappy on paper becomes a reason to buy it? Well then, but also the ones that look good on paper, I'm supposed to buy those too, right? And the right. ones that look super stacked, of course I'm supposed to buy those. Right. So what you're telling me is I should buy absolutely everything and exercise no judgment. Like, that doesn't work. Right. That's not a sales strategy, UFC. It's also weird that you are allowed to say that a card like UFC 178 looks amazing before it happens, but you're not allowed to say that a card like UFC 177 before it happens looks shitty. Right, that's dis- despicable. And the most disgusting thing that a fight promoter who has traveled the world has ever seen. <laughs> uh, and to me, it's it's also really weird after the fact when people do try to lodge this argument that you were just talking about, like when the fights turn out to be enjoyable to watch – People are like, oh, it was actually an awesome event. Like, that's not how it works. And that that kind of logic makes me feel like the people who are trying to sell me these fights don't even understand, like, what I think is cool about this fight. Or, yeah. like, what they don't even understand, like, what I like about their product. Like, they apparently, or they, from the outside looking in, it seems like they are under the impression that as long as they put on awesome fights, that I will love it. And that's only, like, part of the equation. I Yes, I do like to watch awesome fights. But I also like context and I like narrative and I like the UFC. And the reason that I started to like the UFC when I did uh, years ago now was not because they had the most exciting fights, but because they had the best fighters. And they like you could have this narrative about the championship and all these guys trying to, you know, jockey for position and and fight for the title. And and you knew the stories of all these different guys. What would happen if this guy fought that guy? Yeah. And in a lot of fights now, even at the pay-per-view level, that's totally lost. Like that doesn't even exist anymore when you have, you know, Ramsey Najim fighting uh, Carlos Ferrero Diego O'Neill or whoever that guy was that that ended up knocking him out. Well, and that stuff only gets more difficult to pull off when people... Start skipping your events, and they, right. they start to drift away from the sport, and they they lose whatever sense of context that there actually is to be found in some of this stuff. I also think, though, that one of the things that came out really annoying for us as media dudes uh, was that in Dana White's reaction to some of that stuff, he did not seem to understand what the media's role is. Like again and again, and he's he's made these comments several times where you realize, wait a minute, you think we're here to promote your events? No, that's your job. It's called Fight Promoter. It's right there in the job title. Like, that's what you do is promote these events. Like, we, you know, report on what's going on in the sport, uh, voice opinions about what's going on in the sport. But our job is not to sell this stuff for you. Like, that's your job. And, 
it's like it, it's completely insane to see him getting mad because he feels like uh, the media is not doing this job that he assigned to them that, that we should definitely not be taking responsibility for. I mean, if you can make the case, like you said, that, hey, this fight card coming up is awesome and you should totally watch it, then it's perfectly reasonable for somebody to make the case the opposite way that, hey, this one is not that good. And if you want to tell the UFC that you're tired of events like that, Vote with your wallet. Right, which is exactly what Jonathan Snowden did on our website. I read the story. I agreed with him. I think he's right that that's the only power that fans have, really. Like, if you buy every single event, like, you kind of make yourself irrelevant in terms of their of their planning because they know they've already got your money. Uh, I thought it was reasonable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, kind of silly that the UFC would freak out about it to the extent that they have. All right, last question comes from Jeff Jones this week. It says, say words about Chad's girl, Betchy, beating another member of the four horsewomen. Go ahead. I know you want to. Um, your girl. Your yeah. girl, Betch. Hashtag Team Dundas. Betch Cohia goes out there. Hashtag Slinky Dance. Nah, still not into that. But uh, uh, That's a lie. She goes out there, has a come from behind win against Shayna Baszler. Uh, seemed like the, the, the production team missed it when she held up her four fingers and peeled a second one down to indicate, hey, Rhonda, I'm coming for your cohorts and then I'm coming for you. But again, like I think we talked about last week, I feel like this is exactly the kind of thing that the women's bantamweight division needs, even though, objectively speaking, you watch the fights, nobody thinks that Betch Cohia is going to beat Ronda Rousey. In fact, she looks like she would probably be a really, really quick armbar victim uh, if they actually did fight. But the fact that somebody is not scared of Ronda Rousey and is undefeated and does these interviews where she says she's going to beat up all of her friends and then beat her up. It brings this intrigue and, and like a feud and, and interest to that division that I feel like it really, really sorely needs. Because like I've said on this show again and again, to steal a, a, a line from Michael from The Wire, and the problem with the women's bantamweight division is that everybody's just too motherfucking friendly. Yeah. Well, you know, and like we were talking about before, I don't believe that Betch Cohea would be terribly competitive against Ronda yeah. Rousey. I'd like to just see him standing next to each other because I think the size difference, I think Ronda Rousey uh, just way bigger and stronger than Betch as she is. is against all of her opponents. Yeah, but I think, especially, I think it would be evident uh, if you put her in the cage uh, with, with Betch Cohea. But I, I think that it's one of these things where I found myself thinking about, like, wait a minute, I'm saying that I don't think Betch Cohea would be competitive against Ronda Rousey, but I would totally watch it if you made that fight right now um, because she's beaten up two of Ronda Rousey's friends. And whereas with Gina Carano, when the UFC talks about bringing her in, and I feel like I don't believe Gina Carano would be competitive against Ronda Rousey, and I don't particularly want to see it. So how can I justify one and not the other? And I guess my answer is, like, kind of going back to what you said with context, like, Betch Cohea has at least done some stuff to be able to earn that and done it recently, done it, like, within recent memory. Uh, and, you know, it makes sense. It's a, it's a fight that, as far as a story, you can, you can understand why that fight would be happening. Whereas with the Gina Carano thing, the only story to explain why it would be happening is because the UFC thinks it can make a ton of money off of it. Where it's a difference between me feeling like I'm in on the story and I followed it and now here comes its conclusion to where I am the sucker. Like I am the, the butt of the joke there at the end and I, I'm just the, you know, the mark lining up at the carnival paying my nickel. 
Well, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, uh, you know how to do it. You can go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions, uh, our weekly newsletter that comes out straight to your email inbox every Friday morning so you can enjoy it over your cornflakes and coffee or the four donuts that you always eat for breakfast. Uh, and it is our attempt to keep track of the news that happens between from week to week between the time that we record the podcast. Although last week, clearly it didn't work since we put out the damn breakfast of champions. And then, uh, Hen and Burrell got pulled from the card like hours later. Uh, but we do our best, you know, we, we try to we keep can. up. Yeah. Uh, as for right now though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, uh, it seems like there's a lot to unpack in the twisted story of UFC 177, some of which we talked about during Listener Mail, uh, and some of it which we have yet to address. I feel like, though, the guy who is probably most worthy of our attention this week is TJ Dillashaw, and maybe we should start there, and, you know, in time remaining, we can we can talk about the, the numerous other stuff that happened at, at this fight card. But I felt like TJ Dillashaw, once it was all said and done, had really done yeoman's work at UFC 177 because, you know, with Hennon Burrell getting pulled from the card and Joe Soto being promoted into the main event spot, it was hard to make a case that anybody got a shorter straw than the UFC bantamweight champion TJ Dillashaw, who had only been champion for 98 days and was already being forced to come in and have this immediate rematch with Hennon Burrell that it was hard to justify Hennon Burrell actually deserving. Uh, he had spent two fight camps preparing primarily, maybe solely for Hennon Burrell, only to have Hennon Burrell kind of yanked out from under him at the last moment and having Joe Soto put in uh, in what outwardly appeared to be a no-win situation for TJ Dillashaw because that's a dude he's supposed to beat. Uh, and surprisingly enough, I thought after I had actually witnessed TJ Dillashaw's performance, I was able to look at it and say, you know what? I feel like this did actually mean something. I feel like TJ Dillashaw was able to come in here and create some meaning out of this, this terrible situation he was put in because in a weird way, I felt like it was a statement win for TJ Dillashaw. Like he's able to go out there and do exactly what we thought the UFC bantamweight champion is supposed to be able to do to a guy like Joe Soto, uh, dominate him over five rounds and then, and then craft this highlight reel KO knockout at the end of it. And, you know, if the only thing we were looking to get out of a fight between TJ Dillashaw and Hennon Burrell again was this notion uh, that TJ Dillashaw would be able to win as dominatingly as he did the first time, I don't know, man. I feel like we learned pretty much the same thing against Joe Soto. Like, uh, Hennon Burrell won the title. Th I mean, uh, TJ Dillashaw won the title from Hennon Burrell three months ago. I feel like this is the event where he solidified himself as the champion, as the champion and was like, hey, I'm the face of this division moving forward. Yeah, you know, I think that uh, he got some help in that department from Joe Soto, who turned, who, you know, yeah, he, he sure. needed that. He needed uh, for Joe Soto to come out there and prove that he was not a pushover. Because it seemed like there was a moment early on in the first round where it looked like, well, he's taking this back, and now maybe here's the point where he chokes him, and we all throw up our hands and say, man, this was bullshit. 
but that didn't happen. You know, Joe Soto hung tough there uh, and, uh, you know, didn't exactly – like I didn't give him any of those rounds. But, uh, you know, he made some of them competitive. Uh, he proved that he was not going to be a pushover. Uh, and then so that by the time T.J. Dillashaw did put him away, it did seem to mean something. Like it, it meant something different by the end of the fight than it seemed like it was going to at the very beginning. Uh, and that's something that he needed to have a, a tough opponent in order to, to – to be able to to make this mean something, but I I do agree that he probably did more than or probably proved himself to be the kind of champion that uh, the UFC claims that it thinks all champions should be, and yet, man, you're asking an awful lot from that dude to yeah. go not to not only to to go in there and deal with this last minute switch where you're basically just saying like, hey, this guy is the champion. You really got to work your way up and earn your shot at that belt. Unless something weird happens, and then we'll just pick a guy off the prelims, man. And then we're expecting the champion to just say yes. If he says anything other than yes, we will torch his ass, and you know that they will because you've right. seen him do it before. Seen him do it to John Jones, somebody who's a much bigger superstar than T.J. Dillashaw is. So like yeah. he, he was asked to do a whole hell of a lot, and he talked about how he was staying up till one in the morning on Friday night, you know, just basically doing new interviews uh, because all the old interviews had done about Hen and Brow were now kind of out of date. He's still having to do this stuff to help push the UFC's card. And yet, when you think about what's supposed to be the big advantage of being a UFC champion and fighting on these pay-per-views, isn't it supposed to be the points on the pay-per-view? And but when you put him on these shitty pay-per-view cards uh, where there's not a whole lot on the undercard and then the president of the company is telling people, fuck you, I don't care if you buy it. Uh, kind of seems like you're doing all the work and then some that the UFC expects of a champion, but maybe not getting the rewards that we expect a champion to get. Yeah, and kind of two things about that. First of all, Joe Soto is is sort of the nightmare late injury replacement fighter because nobody knows who he is, but he's also a pretty good fighter, yeah. as he proved in the cage against TJ Dillashaw. Like, I agree with you. I didn't give him any of those rounds, but he certainly looked game. Uh, he, he came out in surprising shape. The guy was only supposed to fight three rounds. He ended up going four plus, uh, and he didn't look exhausted. Uh, and so, like, he, you know, he proved himself to be a, a worthy test for TJ Dillashaw at this point in his career. The second thing about TJ Dillashaw, which I feel like put him in a real tough spot for this fight, his last fight against Henan Barrow, UFC 173 in May, was the last fight on his Ultimate Fighter contract. So he got paid 18 and 18 to win that fight, reportedly. Uh, he made $36,000. For this fight, first fight on a new contract, he's going to make 50000 and 50000 So if you're a guy who is accustomed to making a reported $36,000 a fight, you're heading into this one, you're supposed to make 100000 if you win. Pretty hard to walk away from that pay hike when it turns out you can either fight Joe Soto or probably, you know, take it, take your chances, roll the dice as to whether or not you're even going to get paid. Yeah. And not only are you not going to get paid, but then you, you know, they're going to jump out there on the media. They call a conference call and send out a press release about how awful John Jones was when he wouldn't just agree to fight, you know, just anybody. Uh, you know that it would even go worse for TJ Dillashaw. I had actually forgotten until I read the Deadspin article that I think it was the same one you were talking about earlier in the show that in that press release that they sent out about John Jones, they quoted Dana White as saying that this event will be remembered as the event that John Jones and Greg Jackson murdered. That's right. And that that quote murdered. was in the UFC press release. Oh, they quoted right. themselves as saying that. Oh, man. High well, times. High times. But you talk about those, those kind of issues. I mean, one thing you wonder, you talk about TJ Dillashaw's payout. You see Joe Soto's payout. 
Did he make twenty? He made 20, twenty grand. Uh, now was he, that what he was supposed to make anyway, or did he get a raise for for agreeing to fight for the title? You know, I would assume that that's a, a bit of a raise because you wouldn't think a dude on the prelims would make twenty and twenty. Uh, you know, but who knows? I, I don't know. Uh, the the thing is. You know, TJ Dillashaw got a performance of the night bonus uh, for that fight. Uh, Joe Soto didn't. And it's the thing where people are going to assume, I guess, that the UFC made it worth his while to, to step up there uh, and, and, and do that. But it's also a situation where maybe what they consider worth his while is the 20 grand that he made. 20 grand right. to fight for a title, to step up in the main event, to go five rounds when you're only supposed to go three. You're only training for three. And if you don't get a little extra love backstage, it's not like you can complain about it. It's not like you can be like, go to the media and be like, hey, don't you guys think it's kind of fucked up that I didn't get more money to really help out and, and do the company a solid here? Um, because we've seen how that goes if right. everybody complains about money. I mean, it's one of those things where you look at that and everybody will talk about, oh, well, hey, it was this great opportunity for him. Uh, you know, it was, he was his Rocky moment, his Cinderella moment. Uh, at the same time, like that's asking a lot of the dude to to go in there to take his shot right now when he's not totally ready for it, uh, either you know round wise or just like mentally it's not what he was preparing for in this camp. He really did help you out there, uh, and I mean I've heard those guys say before. I've heard, I've heard Joe Silva say it to me before, where I, you know he talks about those those bonuses, those end of the night bonuses, and how they sometimes seem to think of those as like something they're doing for the dudes, like something extra. And I'm saying, no, they earn those. They earn those with their performance. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about Hennon Burrell before we move on to round number two. Uh, what's really going on with Hennon Burrell and his team, uh, Nova Yunyao? Because Nailed we, it. We heard, is that how you say it? How do you say it? I think it's pretty much I think it. I did nail it, you jerk. <laughs> uh, can I say nail it when you really do nail it? No, because while? nail it is what you say when I botch the pronunciation of somebody's name. Just trying to make me feel self-conscious over here. Uh, anyway, last time out before the TJ Dillashaw, the first TJ Dillashaw fight, there were reports that Hennon Burrell had a terrible weight cut. Obviously, he doesn't even make it this time. Uh, by his own admission, either passed out or just got dizzy uh, and hit his head on a bathtub or a wall or some kind of tile slash porcelain type situation where he was not able to continue his weight cut. Uh, Jose Aldo, a teammate of his, is known to have had terrible weight cuts coming down to 145. Uh, and, and Nova Union, I think, had a guy die, right, pretty recently yeah. making a weight cut. Um, so I guess, like, what are we to make of this with, with the bantamweight or a former bantamweight champion not even able to make 135 this time around? Is this a Hannon Burrell problem? Is this a Nova Yunyao problem? Or is this a uh, MMA sport problem where we ask these guys to, uh, you know, by his own admission, cut 22 pounds uh, leading up to this fight when you only when you're trying to get to 135? That's a pretty high percentage of your total body weight. It really is, and to be doing it in a pretty short time span. I mean, I think that's the the big issue there. I also was forced to wonder when we were hearing the stories about what had happened during his weight cut, like. If he doesn't hit his head on some smooth, hard surface, uh, whatever it was. Blunt force trauma. If, if something like that doesn't happen, um, but yet the weight cut is still just as terrible, but you know it just doesn't go right into that territory. Uh, they're able to keep it in the hotel room without having to call any paramedics or anybody up there. I mean, probably chances are, you know, then he goes up in there looking like a skeleton, but making weight, and then it's going to fight the next night. Yeah. I mean, that seems like that should be just as scary as anything else. It's also that's a really weird thing that I think that 
we're going to have to confront eventually in this sport is like, and I've heard it from other fighters who once they get their weight cut down or they get themselves in the right, right weight class and learn how to make the weight cut is they look back on how they used to do it and really end up kicking themselves because they realize I sacrificed a lot performance wise just to get to where I could fight in this weight class because I thought that fighting in that weight class would be somehow an advantage for me. And yet the things I was doing to get there put me at a distinct disadvantage. Like I think that happens probably more than we realize in this sport just because everybody's looking for some kind of edge in that way. And I mean, I think that that's just as dangerous as the weight cut itself is then like going out there and having to, you know, fight really hard for 25 minutes when you've just depleted your body to, to, to the point of near collapse 24 hours before. Yeah, and you know they're they're kind of defiant at this point. At least the headlines I saw, it seems like his his coaches are saying there's no problem with his weight cut. He said there was no problem with his weight cut in during the the interview he did with Joe Rogan that that, that he's not going to have to move up to 145 and they're going to stick around at 135. I feel like the whole weight cutting issue is a, a problem and there's no real easy answer for it at this point. Uh, so we're, you know we're just it's probably going to be an ongoing discussion as we move forward. Uh, let's do. Are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Uh, Ben, this week, my are you fucking kidding me goes out to the, to the, the lovable guys over the Greg Jackson fight team, uh, for constantly being on Twitter the last couple weeks, tweeting about how much they love to play Ultimate Frisbee. What? Are you fucking kidding me? Ultimate Frisbee? Imagine how mad the other Ultimate Frisbee dudes are. The like long haired, dope smoking hippies that love Ultimate down in Albuquerque. Imagine how mad they are when a sweet ass, I'm just going to imagine, like late model VW van pulls up <laughs> and uh, Donald Cerrone, Alistair Overeem, and uh, uh, the rest of the guys from Greg Jackson, Greg Jackson's camp pile out with their... With Maybe their, Holly Holm and Leonard Garcia jumping out of there. Yeah, uh, they, 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 they're wearing their training shoes and they're like, all right, let's play some ultimate. Don't you as those, the, the dudes who up to that point had been holding down the ultimate Frisbee field, you got to be like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking serious? Wait, so they're actually in a league? Well, they play ultimate. I, I assume they don't, don't just intra-squad scrimmage. Wow, you fucking kidding me. At least for the point of my are you fucking kidding me, I assume that. And I mean, it would be unfair, right, if they were allowed to use John Jones. Like with his with his reach, just reaching out there, snag standing in the middle of the field, snagging frisbees across both sidelines. Yeah, that ain't pick, right. there's Tim Kennedy's out there running around with him. Like you see a dude with the legs the size of Tim Kennedy get out of that VW van, you gotta just be like, you know, we quit. Yeah. Forfeit. Oh, maybe maybe he'll get tired as the game wears up. No. <laughs> no, he won't. Well, Chad, this week, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me goes out to whoever the assholes are who robbed UFC bantamweight Anthony Birchak's house. Assholes. Not only are they assholes for robbing another person's domicile, but uh, Birchak was the guy, and I'm not at all certain that I'm saying that right. Nailed it. Uh, he was supposed to fight Joe Soto at UFC 177. We know how that went. Soto got promoted. Uh, he ended up without a fight. Then he goes home, and boom, his house has been robbed. Uh, he was all over uh, social media talking about it. This is one of the, the tweets I really liked. These guys were truly sinister and dastardly. They oh, stole dastardly. my fan, my fan, and some Crispin apple cider so I know it's some punk kids. Also wow. stole a ring that he had made himself uh, to commemorate his, uh, his time in uh, the MFC organization. Uh, and he posted a picture of the ring on Twitter and, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty fucking incredible. 
Uh, like if you yes, were, it is. If you were going to looks like a Super Bowl ring, it does look like a Super Bowl ring. Uh, just blinged out. They stole that bad boy too. Are you fucking kidding me? Give that man his ring back and also possibly his fan. You can keep the apple cider, but fuck you anyway. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's gonna do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, Friday night at the Foxwoods Resort Casino in Ledyard, Connecticut, fight capital of the world. You got yourselves a fight night going down, the rare Friday night fight night. Of course, it has nothing to do with Bellator whatsoever, even though they have a show that same night also in Connecticut. Sweet and sassy, the young vagabond Gegard Musasi going to lock horns with Jacare. Jacare. Now this... This is something I can get excited about. This is one where when they were showing the ads for this one on the Fox Sports 1 prelims when I was watching UFC 177, I was just like, how much money do I have to pay you to watch that right now? That seems like some some stuff that I would be willing to plop down some pay-per-view dollars for. Whole card pretty damn good, actually. Uh, but uh, let's, let's talk about this main event here. You got Jacare and Musasi. <laughs> Both of them ha- have a little bit of a head of steam going here. Uh, how... how do you see this as, is this a contender fight for the middleweight division? Is this, is this the kind of thing where whoever wins this is, is gonna be looking at a title situation soon? Well, if Jacare wins it, yeah, he yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like Jacare might be the dude, given that photographic evidence we've seen of Vitor Belfort post TRT, uh, ban leads us to believe that, that Vitor Belfort is going to roll in as a, shall we say, depleted version of himself. But he's on TNT now. When he fights uh, Chris Weidman at whatever event they're fighting at in, in the future, UFC 180? I don't know. Something, something like that. I, I don't know. Uh, I'm going to come out and say I think Ronaldo Jacare Souza might be the biggest threat right now in the division to whoever has that uh, 15 pounds of gold strapped around their waist because this is a dude who has very, very quietly been being super fucking awesome since he lost to Luke Rockhold back in September of 2011. That itself uh, was a, a pretty close decision. Yeah, he's won six fights in a row. He's he's going to roll into the sweet and sassy fight straight off his unanimous decision win over Frankie Cars. Before that, he blew through Yushin Okami. Uh, and he's the sort of guy who, like, obviously comes from a really, really good jujitsu background. And, you know, like George St. Pierre or like... Uh, Chris Weidman himself, I guess you would say, seems to be the caliber of athlete that once he starts to figure stuff out, just gets really, really good at it. And so he's looked better and better every time we've seen him. Obviously, uh, he's 34 or 35 years old, so we're dealing with a limited window for him. But if he can come out and and beat Musasi convincingly, I'd say, yeah, give me Jacare against whoever has the title because... I'd be excited for that. He's 34. He and I are almost the exact same age. You know that? We have a lot in common, honestly. So he can expect a precipitous drop-off then in his athletic performance if what I'm sitting across the table from is any indication. How dare you? He's he's, he's born December 7th, 1979. I was born October 25th, 1979. Uh, we both like jiu-jitsu. Um, okay, that's we're, enough. We're, you know, we're both need, enthusiasts. I don't need you to make a case about how you and Jacare are, are uh, BFFs. He is nicknamed after an alligator. Um, 
I have a song about alligators that I sing to my daughter uh, when I'm putting her in her jam jams. We're basically the same person. Yeah, is what I'm saying. Yes, we're basically we're we're brothers. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I'm, but I'm still going to remain objective here and say this is not an easy fight necessarily for for Jacare Souza against no, the young vagabond. This is a rematch, right? These guys fought years ago. They fought in 2008, and uh, and Musasi won, although in a fight that it seemed like. Jock Ray was sort of winning up to that point. I haven't watched it for a while, but it's an upkick, right? An upkick. Yeah. Well, but I mean, I feel like, and I don't know, with Musasi, I, you, you could always convince me that he's going to come out on any given night and just look like he's not there. Yeah. Uh, I would never be terribly surprised with that. But I also kind of, in the last couple of performances I've seen of him, kind of want to believe that he's turned a corner in that regard in some ways. Uh, he seems like he has got his shit together. Uh, a little better now than even, you know, two or three years ago, much less like back in 2008 or whenever that fight was. I mean, I think he's a more dangerous fighter now. It seems to maybe believe in himself a little more now. Yeah, both both these guys, I think, are pretty much different guys than the first time they fought each other. And and when you say recent performances uh, from, from Sweet and Sassy Musasi, I assume you mean that three-minute and 57-second mud hole that he stomped in Mark Munoz's ass uh back in may uh albeit on one of those fight pass berlin germany cards which went down in the middle of the morning here in the uh one true time zone well even his loss to machida i mean i don't i think he looked pretty good in that one yeah and and the musa or the munoz one where he just kind of tore through munoz uh is one that maybe like ben Askren that we talked about at the beginning of the of the show makes you want to think that maybe all of this criticism of Musasi as a guy who sometimes mentally checks out and as a guy who looks like a disgruntled teen in most of the photos of him, like <laughs> it's like a, the family Christmas photograph. He's making the, uh, the face of the teenage older brother who would like rather be out with his friends than standing in front of the tree. Yeah, he's, he's just looking up from his Game Boy long enough to pose for the photo. Yeah. So, you know, maybe all the, the, the like criticism and the mock that we've all made over Gegard Musasi uh, all these years. Uh, and and maybe some some things that his team and or UFC management have, have said to him have led him to believe that he needs to go back to being that guy who before he even really uh, came to America or we, we got a really good chance to see him fight had been one of those guys who uh, had the reputation on message boards as being the next big thing. Yeah. Well, you know, though, I mean, uh, the way I know that uh, that this is – some shit that I'm really into is because because of this wedding thing. I'm leaving tomorrow to to go out there, and you know Friday night there's some kind of rehearsal dinner kind of thing, and I'm officially on vacation, so I'm I'm not going to be able to see this one live. And if you'd have told me that I would miss USC 177 because I had you know vacation time off and was off of doing something else uh, in my personal life, I'd have been like, hey, cool. You know, I don't have to write recaps for this one. I'll catch it up, catch up on it later. See you when I see you. This one, I'm actually pissed about it that I'm not going to get to see it live. That I'm going to have to DVR it. I'm sure I'll hear the results. There's no way. Friday night though, you'll be. There's a rehearsal dinner on Friday night. Oh, that can't go that long, can it? I don't know. Sure, it can. Sure, it can. Are you, is this is this a smokescreen because Friday night you're driving up into the main woods to to meet up with Tim Sylvia and watch this fight night event with him at at uh, the Rustic Hut Tavern oh, out man. in the middle of nowhere? Oh, I wish I wish Tim Sylvia and I were going to the Rusty Pelican or whatever it is over there in, in Maine, knock back some some boiler makers or whatever the hell they do, watch these fights and hit, watch Tim's eyes go glassy as he relives his glory days. That would be some shit. Uh, yeah, I think you can you can make time for this, and and you know if if you don't, I assume you got the DVR set, and you'll you'll catch up with it. 
when you can. But I mean, that's the thing is that, that kind of just like reminds me. It's not often that I miss one, you know, right. because it's my job. And I would think that like it, most of the time, if I did miss one, I would be like, all right, well, hey, night off, night off for the kid. That's cool. I'll, I'll DVR it and I, you know, whatever. I won't be too sad about it. I'll catch up with it when I can. This one I'm actually pissed off about missing because I really want to see that one. Yeah. What do you think about Friday night show in general? Because I kind of feel positive about it. Uh, it seems like a Friday, I don't know, you know, clearly they have demographics and stuff like that. that they've got numbers, you know what I mean? Probably lead them to believe that Saturday is the day to have these shows. But me personally, I feel like Friday is going to fit a schedule way better for me because, you know, if there's an event on Saturday night, it's like you you do stuff on Saturday, but you've always got in the back of your mind, oh, I got to be home by three or whatever because these UFC prelims start Friday. You can just kind of do your normal Friday work and then roll straight into your prelims and your event. Once you wrap that up, you file your story. Man, spring break for the weekend. Am I right? <laughs> well, you know, one of the problems that uh, – because when I was working for the IFL, we did pretty much exclusively Friday night shows. I think probably because the venues were cheaper. Uh, and maybe that they didn't want to risk that if you're on a Saturday night, you'll go up against the UFC. Kind of the same thing Bellator does here, basically. Um, one of the problems that the IFL ran into in, when doing that was, yeah, fine, it works fine for TV, which the IFL most of the time wasn't even on, but uh, if, like, say you're doing an event in Oakland, right, and you're relying on people from San Francisco and from Mountain View and from all over the area – uh, Stockton, what, what, like driving up to see the event because, you know, they're fight fans and they hear that you're, that's the closest you're going to get to the area. If you have it on a Friday where, you know, people might work till five or six, mm. yeah, it gives point. them a lot less opportunity to get over there uh, and get there in time for, for when they want to be there for the show to start. If you do it at Saturday, it, it's, a, it's a lot easier for people to come from nearby cities to come see you. Yeah, good point. I'm, I just feel like on Friday nights, I, I a lot of times end up watching whatever's on Access because I'm just I'm hanging around. I got nothing else to do. So if I'm going to tune into RFA or or whatever they got, you know, uh, whatever Michael Schiavello was calling this week, uh, just turn the sound way down, way down, uh, and uh, and watch that. I'm you know, I would guess that the uh, Friday night UFC is gonna is gonna be right in my wheelhouse. Man, but, now I got this image of you sitting here late on a Friday night, shirtless, mm-hmm. just. Cheeto puff yep. dust blanketing your chest hair. Right. The only light, the glow of the TV. Yep. You nailed it, my man. <laughs> that's what it looks like. Oh, that's Anyway, beautiful. that's going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Ben, well, on Friday night, when the UFC is at Foxwoods Resort and Casino in Ledyard, Connecticut, some 12 and a half miles away, your old friend Scott Coker is going to be there with Bellator 123 up in Uncasville, Connecticut at the Mohegan Sun Arena. 
Uh, I feel like when this news was announced that these two events were basically going to be going head to head and that uh, Scott Coker was in at Bellator, maybe there was this surge of excitement like we thought we were going to be getting into a uh, Monday Night Wars type scenario, the MMA version of that. Uh, but, the, you know, Bellator signings and, and Bellator moves after Scott Coker has, has taken that job have been a little bit of a mixed bag, uh, like kind of awesome that they're bringing in Paul Daly. Uh, kind of not awesome that they're bringing in Stefan Bonner to fight mm-hmm. Tito Ortiz. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess my question to you is, are, are we getting into a situation now where Bellator is going to start making noise and, and we're going to start seeing these head to head matchups and it's going to feel like a real horse race or like, has this all been kind of much ado about not very much? I don't know. I mean, I guess it'll depend, uh, how this actually stacks up when it happens. For one thing, is the UFC still trying to claim that uh, their decision to have a Friday night show in Connecticut has nothing to do with Bellator? Is that still the official company line? I I don't know. Because come on, dog. Come on. Why you why would you do that? Why why would you play Dennis the Menace on that one? Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you guys are talking about. I guess it just worked out this way. We never do Friday night events, but here we are in the same exact state just a few miles away from where Bellator is doing theirs. Ain't that a coincidence? All right, well, let's look at the cards here. You know, the right now, the Fox Sports 1 card, main card, is listed as having six fights. Uh, I understand that's actually not right, that it's going to be just four fights, and that Joe Lousen versus Michael Chiesa is going to kick it off. Then you've got Matt Matrione against Derek Lewis. Uh, then you've got Alistair Overeem versus Ben Rothwell, and obviously topping off the card is Jacare Souza against Gigard Mousasi. Uh, over on Spike, uh, with the Bellator card, you got Bobby Lashley versus Josh Burns. Okay. Uh, Muhammad Lawal against Dustin Jacoby. All right. Check, like third opponent for King Mo, I yeah, think. Check Congo against LeVar Johnson. And All then, right. then your main event is Pat Curran versus Patricio Pitbull Ferrer. For Ferrer. Nailed it. Uh, I assume for the discre- the, the, the discriminating, discerning, uh, U- MMA fight fan that the UFC card is, is probably going to win out. Uh, but just for the, casual guy who might be cruising through the uh the dial here and is probably gonna first of all get to spike tv a lot sooner than he's gonna get up to the 500s or wherever uh fox sports one is uh really because um for mine it's the opposite you think that the discerning fight fan is gonna it would rather watch the bellator card oh do tell no well i mean i would i was thinking that uh with if i'm bellator here i'd gotta be feeling like man all the weak-ass stuff the UFC has put on Fox Sports 1 in the past, and they, when they come rolling up against us, they got to do it with the card where everybody is saying, shit, this could be a pay-per-view. Yeah, like that, no, that's what I'm saying. Like, I feel like the actual MMA fan is going to say the, the Fight Night card as the better one. But if you're just Johnny Casual and you're, you're flicking through the dials and you, you, you see Bobby Lashley out there probably laying on top of a guy who doesn't have his own Wikipedia page, punching him in the back of the head... You might stop and watch that, well, especially if you know King Moe's coming up on the other side of the NOS, com, NOS energy drink commercial or whatever they have on Bellator, Dave and Buster's commercial. Well, the thing is, like, I think that a lot of people who are not huge fight fans but like to watch the shit when it comes on, and but uh, for some reason, think not, the UFC is still on spike. Not at all. Com- different. Yeah, not compelled enough to figure out when the stuff will be on or who is going to be on beforehand. They're just cruising through the dials. I mean, for one thing, for my dials, Fox Sports 1 is a lot closer to the other stuff that I will actually be watching. Like the other channels, I might have been, it's like in the 150 something range. And yeah, Spike TV is now like 200 something. Oh, is it really? Yeah. Um, but they might be 
are in fact probably way more likely to to think that okay, well, Spike TV. There's a network that has fights, like uh-huh. whereas Fox Sports One, they even know what the hell that is. They they just it's not been around long enough, I think, for people to really associate it yet with like, okay, that's where I go to watch fights, and that's kind of been Spike's whole hope this entire time is that they've just built themselves up enough in people's minds that people think Spike, hey, it's Friday night, Spike probably has some fights on. What if Bellator cruises out of this with the better rating? Which I could see that happening. Like, I don't know if that's a given. Uh, it's probably the UFC outdraws them. But what if Bellator rolls out of this head to head matchup uh, w- with slightly more hundreds of thousands of viewers than, than both, of, you know, than the UFC? Because they're both going to draw in the neighborhood of 500,000, 700,000, something like that. Ain't no uh, way. Ain't no way Bellator if, beats them with this. What if it happens? Is that a. W- w- are you going to buy stock in, in Bellator all of a sudden? Sell your UFC shares that I know you're you're hoarding away. <laughs> I'm still got, retirement. I'm, I'm still holding on to my IFL shares. I, I think that that one's uh, you know <laughs> that's going to make a comeback. Time's going to tell on that now. one. I think uh, you really think that there's a chance that Bellator with this lineup beats the UFC with that lineup? Come on, the UFC and you know the UFC uh, has like just so much of a stronger lineup. Not only that, but also like has been getting so much of a bigger push like this. Like how much have you heard about this Bellator card? Well, nothing. You never hear about any Bellator And you're in the industry. Yes, that's true. But I'm saying like my gut tells me that the dude who makes the difference, who is just the dude who's cruising the dial, right? Like he's going to see King Mo wrestling some guy, Dustin Jacoby, another guy who doesn't have a Wikipedia page. He might stop. He might think he's already watching the UFC (laughs) for all we know. Oh god! I, if I had now to, I'm if, getting depressed. If I had any kind of disposable income that I could put down as a bet, I'd say the UFC probably wins the rating war here. But if it came out the other way, or if it came out very, very close, I wouldn't be that surprised. I mean, their numbers are comparable anyway, really. Yeah, I just wonder why it's worth it for the UFC to to just, to choose now as the time to go and, and counter program Bellator. Why? It doesn't why go really fuck make any now? sense. Like I don't. Just let Bellator do what they're doing with Pitbull against Pat Curran and then come on the next night with your Musasi and Jacare. I don't well, really... It also, to me, I mean, maybe this is just has to do with my familiarity with how the UFC often works, but, like, it's the thing that makes me start to think, oh, wait, you're taking Bellator seriously, right, aren't yeah. you? Like, if you if you just continued Without ignoring them, letting them... too much. Yeah, letting them just run their shows from, from the Mohegan Sun up there in good old Uncasville, uh, which, man, you want to go to a shit town... Uncasville, Connecticut. You've been to Uncasville? Oh, yeah, man. The IFL used to go and run events there all the time. This is more IFL references than we've ever had on this show. Uh, But, yeah, actually, uh, my wife and I uh, nearly got kicked out of a uh, a hotel adjacent to the... uh, the Mohegan Sun uh, for pool antics. Oh, I was um, going to guess loud lovemaking. <laughs> yeah, you know what? In the next version of the story, yeah, it'll be loud lovemaking, and I will phrase it exactly like that. Instead, just having a few too many cocktails and pool antics. But you're saying this makes you feel like the UFC's sweating Bellator more than it lets on. Yeah, well, I mean, if you just keep ignoring them and keep doing your thing, confident that you're the number one and they're a distant number two, uh, you wouldn't be doing something like this. You know, like doing something like this. It's the same as when, uh, you know, Dana White starts taking some serious shots at it. Or like we said before, when he starts reacting really defensively to something, like something that affects the bottom line, like we talked about earlier, then that's when you think, okay, that's something you're worried about because you're getting irate about it and that vein is popping out in your head. Same kind of thing here. Like once you start counter-programming them, it tells us that you're concerned about them or at least that you're thinking about them, Uh, which I don't know. I mean, I feel like 
lineup against lineup, you ought to be able to just completely smash them. And it, like you're inviting the comparison now, uh, whereas maybe you wouldn't have been before. Yeah, maybe so. I'm, I'm going to be interested to see the number when it comes out. Let's do uh, just saying stuff, and then we'll wrap up for this week. Ben, I'm just saying this week, I know that you probably saw the San Jose Mercury News feature story about uh, marginally well-known MMA fighter Matt Major. I did. Currently being homeless, and he has a comeback fight coming up uh, that uh, uh, is, is later this month. It might be even be this weekend or next weekend. It's, it's, in, it's in two weeks, I think. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw Matt Major on the old Tap Out show. I did, did you ever yeah. see that? I did. God, the Tap Out reality show, kind of from the wild west of the MMA days, just a glorious scene. Uh, I'm just saying it is both sobering and depressing if you are Matt Major to know that, like, basically on back-to-back episodes of the Tap Out show, uh, you were featured and Donald Cerrone was featured, and you wound up homeless and he wound up as basically, like, the UFC's favorite fighter of all time my dudes is gonna fight like six times this year and is currently building a gym in his backyard just saying just saying and if donald cerrone ever is homeless he'll probably still have a boat or two left to live on right yeah he's got assets it'd be like one of those one of those lethal weapons where Riggs is living on a boat or some shit isn't that that must happen at some point he doesn't have savings but he has assets okay (laughs) jet skis are assets right oh yeah totally Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, here's a quote from Ben Askren appearing on the MMA Fortnite today, or yesterday. Well, no, today. Uh, Even last weekend, Burrell, did he make a mistake? Yeah, he blew it. He freaking blew it big time. He probably shouldn't be at 135 pounds. But the way Dana just threw him under the bus like he was a piece of garbage, where was some human decency there? I think we've seen it time after time with Dana. And so I think at the end of the day, he cares about his bottom line a lot, and he doesn't care enough about the athletes. I'm just saying, Ben Askren, I don't know what you're doing over there, but man, I am into it. Keep it up, Ben Askren. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next Tuesday, because Ben's fucking us by going to this wedding, uh, to break down all the stuff that happens at this UFC Fight Night 50 and look ahead to whatever's happening next week. What We got uh, Hunt and uh, Nelson coming up in Japan. That's right. Uh, and I'll probably have some awesome stories about uh, what Tim Sylvia is up to. Yeah. Hashtag lifestyle piece. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Have you been uh, working on your main accent for this for this wedding? What do you mean working on? You've heard my main accent; it's flawless. Uh, it is pretty good. It might be your best impression. So I'm just wondering if you're gonna if you're gonna bust it out at the wedding, try to pass yourself off as a local, as a main head. Is that what they call it? No, I'm gonna, I'm totally gonna bring it out so that I can complain about uh, all these yuppies from out of state. And I'm all-